Section 23 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 3, Part 6. Disabilities Disabilities have already been considered in their relation to the finances of the Inquisition, arising from the sale of dispensations, but they formed too important a portion of the penal system not to require further treatment in this connection. They differed, however, from other punishments, in that, although specified in the sentences, they were the inseparable consequences of condemnation for heresy, and thus, in some sense, self-operative, for the severity of the laws for the suppression of misbelief was not content with confiscating the property of those whose lives were spared. The reconciled heretic was not only turned adrift penniless, but was subjected to restrictions incapacitating him from earning a livelihood. As this refinement of cruelty could not be applied to those who were burned, it was visited on their descendants. This latter provision was derived from the imperial legislation against treason, which disabled children of traitors from holding office and succeeding to collateral estates. Frederick II, in his Ravenna Decree of 1232, made this applicable to the children and grandchildren of heretics, which was eagerly incorporated into the legislation of Alexander IV and Honorius IV, although Boniface VIII mitigated it slightly by exempting grandchildren in the female line. As part of the canon law, this, of course, governed the Spanish Inquisition, and if there were those who questioned the justice of punishing orthodox children for their parents' heresy, they were triumphantly silenced by Alfonso de Castro, who pointed to original sin as an irrefragable proof that this was in accordance with the will of God. The application of these restrictions to reconciled penitents apparently originated with the Council of Béziers in 1246, which ordered that penitents should not hold public office, or serve as physicians or notaries, or wear silk garments or gold and silver ornaments or other vanities, in short, that their apparel should befit those whose lives constructively were to be passed in repentance. These provisions were not carried into the canon law, but apparently became traditional in the Holy Office. In the instructions of 1484 there is nothing said as to the disabilities of descendants, but inquisitors were instructed to order penitents, after completing their penance, never to hold public office or benefices, or to serve as procurators, tax collectors, farmers of the revenue, grocers, apothecaries, physicians, surgeons, bleeders, or brokers, thus prohibiting the professions which they had specially made their own. Moreover, they were not to wear gold or silver, coral, pearls, or other precious stones, or garments of silk or camlet, or other finery, or to ride on horseback or bear arms, and all this during life under penalty of relapse. There was evidently doubt as to the application of these restrictions to the descendants of those relaxed, but that there was an effort made in that direction is shown by their procuring, in 1486, from Innocent VIII, a brief enabling them to farm the revenues of churches. 
In the Assembly of Inquisitors, in 1488, the matter excited considerable debate, resulting in instructions that each tribunal in its own district should enforce, under heavy penalties, the disability of children and grandchildren to hold any office or dignity that could be considered public, and the list of prohibited callings was enlarged by including those of merchants, notaries, scriveners, advocates, farmers of revenues, and some others. The sumptuary restrictions were not extended to them, for they were not penitents, but they were forbidden to wear the insignia of any dignity, secular or ecclesiastic. The omission was made good in a decree issued by Torquemada, April 22, 1494, but it was so slackly obeyed that when, in 1502, the sovereigns ordered its enforcement, they allowed a certain time for those affected to become acquainted with its provisions. Ferdinand himself had an occasion to recognize the hardship of the rule, for in 1500 the mother of Pedro Ruiz, a member of his royal guard, was condemned and consequently he was incapacitated from riding and bearing arms. Unwilling to lose him, Ferdinand wrote to Torquemada for letters of dispensation to be brought back by the messenger. We have seen how, in the struggle over the profits of dispensation, the sovereigns abandoned to the Inquisition the cosas arbitrarias, or sumptuary restrictions, and assumed to themselves, by the pragmaticas of 1501, control over the disability to hold office and to follow certain professions and trades, which limited so greatly the ability of the reconciled and of the children and grandchildren of the condemned to support themselves. A humane exception was made, however, in 1502, under which children reconciled below the age of fourteen were exempted from the operation of the pragmaticas. As these were municipal laws, they were subject to the secular officials, who were ordered to enforce them under pain of confiscation and loss of office for negligence. It was easier to publish edicts than to get them executed. The civil magistrates seem to have paid little attention to the pragmaticas, while the Inquisition did what it could within its allotted sphere. The Suprema issued orders to the tribunals to punish with all rigor those who disregarded the sumptuary restrictions, who were said to be numerous, in great contempt of the holy office. It was probably to stimulate zeal that, in 1509, it modified the penalty of relapse to a pecuniary penance, which it authorized the inquisitors to impose at discretion, bearing in mind the gravity of the case and the wealth of the offender. The sums thus realized were considerable enough to tempt the cupidity of the courtiers, for in May 9, 1514, we find the king making over to four of his ushers the penalties levied on the sons of Alonso Gallo of Toledo, and on April 1st he ordered Vasquez de Busto, alguacil of Toledo, to collect all the penances of this kind, to pay one half to the receiver for the tribunal, and divide the other half between the fiscal, Martin Jimenez, and a servant of Secretary Calcena. The punishments decreed in the pragmaticas were also modified to fines, as we learn from a letter of June 20, 1515, dividing those incurred in Seville between Calcena and Aguirre, after setting aside one-third for the tribunal, 
and from another letter of January 8, 1516, bestowing on Fernando de Hoyos, portero of the Cuenca Tribunal, the penalties incurred by the wives of Pedro de Vaguera and of Quiros and Jaime Boticario, for exercising the profession of apothecary. At length it was recognized that the Inquisition was the only instrumentality to be depended upon for the enforcement of the pragmaticas, and Charles V, in a cedula of March 30, 1528, placed the whole business in its hands. He recited the laws of Ferdinand and Isabella with their severe penalties for negligent officials, in spite of which he was informed that, in many places, they were disregarded, wherefore he granted to the Inquisition all necessary powers and ordered it to see to the execution of the law. Possibly there may have been some opposition by the secular authorities to this invasion of their jurisdiction, which called for a repetition of the cedula, March 2, 1543. In pursuance of this, the Suprema, in Cartas Acordadas of 1548-1549 and 1566— called the attention of the tribunals to the number of persons engaged in prohibited callings, or wearing forbidden articles, and it urged them to be active in detecting and punishing the offenders. The construction of the laws was rigorous. There was a nice question whether, when a parent was condemned in absentia as contumacious, the children were subject to the disabilities, for the heresy was presumptive and not proven. Farinacci held that they were not, for the absentee, even though burnt in effigy, could always return and prove his innocence. Peña represents the stricter Spanish view, that the fugitive was condemned as a heretic and his children were incapacitated. The matter was threshed out in the case of the son of Antonio Pérez, who was deprived of a pension on the Church of Cuenca. This was the final decision of the Rota after full argument. It served as a precedent, and the sentence of the absent contained the same enumeration of disabilities as that of one who was burnt in person. Some doubts arose as to whether the pragmaticas prohibited trade in general. All such points were reserved to the king, and when, in 1566, it was proposed to prosecute some merchants, the Suprema ordered the cases to be suspended until he should be consulted. It was less cautious when, in 1542, it forbade all reconciled penitents to keep schools or even to teach children their letters. A question arose whether the prohibition to ride on horseback comprehended mules, but Simancas decides it in the affirmative and even desires to include vehicles, as it is fitting that all such persons should walk on foot. Even the limits of the canon law were disregarded in the panic occasioned by the discovery of Protestantism in 1559, for in the Seville Auto of September 24th, when Juan Ponce de Leon was burnt, the disabilities of his descendants in the male line were extended to the fourth generation. An ecclesiastical career was closed to penitents and their descendants, who were forbidden to enter holy orders. There was some question raised whether those who were in orders could obtain or retain benefices, but it was decided in the negative. The practice, as stated about 1640, was that, on their visitation, the inquisitors dealt summarily with cases concerning the cosas arbitrarias, 
while those which involved the holding of benefices or public office were sent to the tribunal for trial. In the edicts of faith which they published, denunciations were invited, and all persons were required to give information as to any infractions of the laws of which they were cognizant. As everyone who had the misfortune to fall into the hands of the Inquisition was a marked man thereafter, and was liable to the suspicion that he had incurred disabilities, a suspicion apt to grow stronger with time and to affect his descendants, it became important for those who were not thus affected to have some evidence of the fact. In the earlier time the Inquisition was chary about affording this relief, but did not absolutely refuse it when the sufferer applied to the Suprema. It was not everyone, however, who could obtain the intervention of the Suprema. Popular prejudice was strong, and no one knew what took place within the precincts of the tribunals. Blighted careers were thus numerous. Escobar, in his work on Limpieza, tells us that, at the origin of the Inquisition, it punished the lightest offenses with extreme severity, and this, after the lapse of a century and a half, was still disastrously affecting the descendants. It was inhuman that a word inadvertently spoken through levity or anger, or in jest, should bring infamy on the delinquent and his posterity without limitation of time. The memorial of 1623, by a member of the Suprema, discusses the same evil. The writer says that the Inquisition is surrounded by enemies who are daily multiplied through those afflicted by the tribunals. It is not merely those who are relaxed or reconciled or compelled to abjure de vehementi, but there are many well-affected old Christians punished with lighter penalties who, if they remain defamed and their posterity disabled from honors, must necessarily add to the number of enemies, and it is pitiable thus to afflict them for trivial causes. The tribunals did not cease to afflict the people, but some relief was afforded by a practice, which gradually came into use, of including, in a sentence for light offenses or of acquittal, a clause declaring that the party and his descendants were not subject to disabilities, and that he could have a certificate to that effect. Two examples of this, occurring in Valladolid in 1638, will suffice. In the case of Agustin Lopez, tried for blasphemy, the consulta de fe could not agree, and the Suprema sentenced him to reprimand in exile, adding that the sentence should be no bar to offices of honor or in the Inquisition. So a sentence, acquitting Miguel Ruiz of a charge of sorcery, says that his imprisonment shall not be an obstacle to him and his children, and that he shall have a certificate to that effect. That Ruiz had not even been confined in the secret prison, but in the public jail, shows how sensitive was the popular mind. These certificates, de no obstancia, as they were called, would appear as a rule not to be issued unless specially applied for, and yet how important they were to the individual and his posterity is manifested by a petition presented, January 17, 1818, by the licentiate Mariano de Santander y Álvarez, setting forth that, twenty years before, in 1798, his father had been arrested and prosecuted by the Valladolid Tribunal, because, in his trade as a bookseller, he had sold prohibited books. 
In the final sentence, it was declared that his imprisonment and prosecution did not prejudice him or his descendants in the enjoyment of their civil rights, but the secrecy of the Inquisition, and the loss of the certificate given to the father, prevented the petitioner from furnishing the proofs necessary to his admission as an advocate in the royal chancellery, wherefore he begged for a proper testimonial. The Suprema had the statement verified, and ordered a certificate to be duly issued. From this, as well as from the memorial of 1623, it appears that not merely reconciliation, but even abjuration or lesser penalties, inflicted disabilities, if not as to the cosas arbitrarias, at least as to the attainment of an honorable career. In the closing years of the Inquisition, this sometimes led to a merciful moderation of the sentence, as in that pronounced, August 27, 1817, on Francisco Mosquera Villa Marino of Santiago, quote, Bachier Clásico y Profesor del Sexto Cuerpo de Canones en su Real Universidad, end quote, for certain propositions. He escaped with a reprimand in the audience chamber and without abjuration, it being expressly stated that he was treated with this benignity in order not to prejudice him in his career, though he was warned that the Inquisition would keep a watch on him. Popular prejudice, as we have seen, intensified the cruelty of the cruel laws. How inveterate was this is manifested in the case of Joseph Callot, who in 1791 sought in marriage the daughter of Pablo Bordo, a merchant of Valencia. The parents refused assent, and the lovers eloped. Bordeaux brought the matter before the royal audiencia, showing that Callot was the great-grandson of Clara Munoz, who at the age of nineteen was reconciled for Judaism in the Barcelona Auto de Fe of April 2, 1724, and was sentenced to irremissible carcel y abito, although after two years her husband, Antonio Antonelli, obtained her release. In view of this dissent, the Audiencia decided that Bordo's opposition to the marriage was reasonable and just, thus inflicting an indelible stigma on Callot and his posterity. In some way the affair reached the Suprema, who wrote to Valencia for details, and in transmitting them, the inquisitors added an expression of sympathy for Callot in the dishonor cast upon him. The punishment of his great-grandmother did not disable him from the professions, but it would be difficult to restore him to his good fame without calling in question the justice of the sentence of the Audiencia. Even the Inquisition did not venture to repair an injustice caused by its assiduous training of the population in an unreasoning abhorrence of heresy. The penalty for disregarding the disabilities settled down to the thrifty one of a fine. As regards those imposed by the pragmaticas, the Suprema, in 1531, replied to an inquiry from the tribunal of Avila y Segovia that, although the laws prescribed confiscation for infractions, yet the practice was to penance culprits in accordance with their wealth and station and the degree of the offense. So, in respect to the cosas arbitrarias, it decreed in 1536 that although the instructions of 1484 provided the pain of relapse, they did not require the inquisitors to condemn the infraction as such, 
and the practice was to impose pecuniary and spiritual penances. Cases of prosecution for infraction are not very numerous in the records, chiefly owing, we may presume, to the customary sale of rehabilitations. In the Tribunal of Toledo they amount only to ninety-one, and of these it is noteworthy that there are only three posterior to 1586, two in 1600 and one in 1616. When they occurred, the penalty was at the discretion of the tribunal, and Toledo exercised this with great moderation in 1579, when Bernardino de Aldana, a ribbon-weaver, spontaneously denounced himself. His mother, Isabel Alvarez, had been burnt by the Cuenca Tribunal, yet he had worn a velvet cap, had carried a sword, and had ridden on a mule with a saddle. He was married, and had done this to satisfy his wife and her kindred, and besides his brother had told him that they had been rehabilitated. His artless story seems to have moved his judges, for he escaped with a reprimand and a fine of two ducats. In 1703, the Tribunal of Madrid was more severe with Simón de Andrade, a reconciled penitent, who had worn the prohibited articles. He was harshly reprimanded, was fined in fifty ducats, was banished for a year, and was required to surrender the cosas arbitrarias, but we are told that he was permitted to keep the garments which he had on, to cover his nakedness, especially as they were of ordinary cloth clerical offenders. In a land where theocratic influence was so strong, it was inevitable that there should be especial favor shown to erring ecclesiastics. The church has ever sought to conceal from the public the knowledge of weaknesses that might diminish veneration for its ministers, and scandal has been more dreaded than sin. The Inquisition established its jurisdiction over both the secular and the regular clergy, but it exercised that jurisdiction in accordance with the general policy of the church. Every care was taken to keep clerical offenses from public knowledge, except in cases of formal heresy or of administering the sacraments by those who held only the lower orders. As a rule, in place of being confined in the secret prison during trial, they were housed in some convenient convent, where their presence need excite no surprise. When convicted, they were not exposed in the public autos de fe, but their sentences were read in the audience chamber with closed doors, though in certain cases a prescribed number of other clerics were summoned to be present as witnesses. Even then they did not wear the penitential habit, as did laymen. For aggravated offenses, the ordinary punishment was reclusion in a designated convent for a specified term, a penalty which might be infinitely varied. Perhaps six months or a year was to be passed in a cell. The culprit was to be last in choir and refectory. He might be suspended for a term, or perpetually, from some or all of his functions, and of the right to vote or be voted for. Spiritual penances might be superadded, or, at his entrance, he might be subjected to a zura de rueda, or circular discipline, in which all the members of the house, including the lay brethren, took a hand. All these greater or less aggravations could be varied or accumulated to meet the exact shades of guilt. This conventual reclusion was adopted, perhaps, 
partly for concealment, and partly as a milder form of incarceration, but the mercy was doubtful, if we may trust the story told by Llorente, of a capuchin guilty of aggravated abuse of the confessional, who, when condemned to five years' reclusion in a convent of his order, begged to have it changed to incarceration in the secret prison. He had been, he said, provincial and guardian, he knew how the brethren treated those thrust upon them as criminals, and it would cost him his life. His prayer was refused, and his prevision was correct, for he died within three years. I have met, however, with cases in which the recluded fraile survived longer terms. As a rule, no doubt, life was not rendered pleasant, but it depended on circumstances. The Franciscan, Francisco Ortiz, sentenced to confinement for two years in a cell in the convent of Torre Laguna, without intercourse with his brethren, refused to leave his retirement on the expiration of the term, and remained there until his death, twelve years later, the object of veneration to all around him. There might or might not be sympathy for the penitent, and his treatment naturally corresponded. When, however, the offense was formal heresy, entailing reconciliation or relaxation, the cleric was obliged to appear in an auto de fe like any other culprit. Cases of the kind were common enough in the early period when many conversos had entered the church, but, after the thorough weeding out by the Inquisition, they became rare. An essential preliminary was degradation from the priesthood, which was of two kinds, verbal and formal, the former sufficing for cases of reconciliation, while relaxation required the latter. Verbal degradation effaced the orders, but not the priestly character, and, in the later period, publicity was often avoided by executing the sentence in the audience chamber, as in the Toledo cases of Jacinto Vasquez Aranzo, a priest convicted of Judaism and condemned to the galleys, December 4, 1688, and of Buenaventura Frutos, cura of Mosejon, sentenced February 19, 1722. Originally, the ministration of a single bishop sufficed for verbal degradation, while two were required for formal, until Gregory the Ninth, to facilitate the operations of the Inquisition, decreed that, in cases of heresy, the bishop of the culprit could perform the ceremony in the presence of some abbots and other learned men, and finally, in 1551, the Council of Trent permitted a single bishop to officiate in all cases of formal degradation, and his vicar-general in verbal degradation. The ceremony of public formal degradation was impressive. The culprit marched in the procession bearing the mitre and San Benito of relaxation, which were removed on the staging in order that he might be seen in his priestly vestments and tonsure. In the case of Fray Joseph Diaz Pimiento, a relapsed Judaizer, burnt at the Seville Auto de Fe of July 25, 1720, we are told that an immense crowd was assembled, for no degradation had been witnessed there since 1623. The auto was celebrated in the church of San Pablo, but as soon as Fray Joseph's sentence was read, he was taken by a number of officials to a scaffold in the Plaza de San Francisco, where the bishop of Lycopolis, the assistant of the archbishop, performed the ceremony. 
His tongue, the palms of his hands and fingertips, were scraped and rubbed with tow. The tonsure was erased by cutting his hair, and he was deprived of his orders one by one in the reverse order of their bestowal. He was then handed over to his superiors of the mercenarian order, who stripped him of the habit, after which the mitre and San Benito with painted flames were replaced on him, and he was taken to the juzgado, or secular court, and delivered to the deputy assistente of the city, to be formally sentenced and conducted to the brasero. End of chapter 3. End of section 23.